Hi, welcome back to my podcast. Uh, in this episode, Diamati and I are touching on a range of topics concerning uh, who really is Amida, uh, and we explore the, the relationship between Amida and Buddha nature, uh, and various other key concepts, including the notion of the Trikaya. So I hope you enjoy the podcast. I'm stuck on trying to answer the question of who is Amida, which seems like quite an important question, um, and bringing Amida in relation, first of all, to the Trikaya. Uh, and maybe that was a mistake, trying to bring in the Trikaya. Um, but, uh, but also Buddha nature as well. Um, I mean, could you, could you equate... Could you equate Buddha nature with Dharmakaya? Could you see those two as related? Would you see those two as related or are they just slightly different ideas? Well, Shinran himself seems to identify yeah. Amitabha with all of those things. The, 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 the notion of, of um, Buddha nature is I, I don't think that, that the, the concept of Buddha nature really appears that much in Sanskrit, it seems to be something that the Chinese Chinese did, and it it seems to be that it's based very much on on kind of collapsing together the the uh, the you know the the uh, trikaya uh, dharma dhatu trikaya um, and and um, tathagata garbha right alaya vijnana i mean all of these things but that's just a series of words uh that you're using there diamati a long <laughs> string of words that sound complicated right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah you know suchness as well uh, right. <laughs> right but no I, I, you're right though they do all seem to kind of um kind of run together a bit don't they Right. Uh, the, the bit that um, so so maybe I'm not wrong in uh, try. I don't think Shinran explicitly uses the terminology of the trikaya, uh, but he does talk about um, what does he talk about the, the the dharma nature as suchness. I think is what he says, and mm. then dharma nature as compassionate means. Yeah. Um, and the compassionate means I understand to be uh, the uh, the manifestation of Amida, and also, if I remember correctly, he seems to indicate that actually Shakyamuni is Amida as well. Um, so Shakyamuni kind of reveal is revealed, or or incarnates as a manifestation of Amida. So effectively, then Amida becomes the Trikaya. Uh, that's uh, well. What do you think about that? That's what I'm getting, or that's that's that, I think that's the idea that I've got. Yeah, that that seems that seems right to me. And the, I mean, in traditional Trikaya doctrine, you have the you know the Nirmanakaya, the Sambhogakaya to contend with. And so, um, in traditional, I guess early, I don't I don't know at what stage in Mahayana, the Sambhogakaya is you 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 have the you have the the the, the sort of earthly Buddha that anybody can see, you know. A, a dog or an ant or a, a mosquito could see could see that, but then there's another one that's available only to people who have really purified mentalities. That's the Sambhogakaya, and and I've seen I I've, I've seen Amitabha um, presented as an example of the Sambhogakaya that sort of only people who have a purified mentality can, as it were, experience. Amitabha for everyone else it maybe it's just an idea and then um, but he but he also seems to be what suffuses all of those is, is the Dharmakaya so so that you have you have the the uh, the Dharma as such and in in Mahayana Buddhism um, Shakyamuni becomes the he Shakyamuni actually becomes the sort of principle of Buddhism kind of like the notion of the Godhead in, in uh, in, in Christian mysticism, you have, you know, that which is kind of beyond that that's quite transcendental, but it's also imminent. And and um, and so so that Shakyamuni is that sort of cosmic 
principle of Buddhism, and then um, the you know Gautama Siddhartha Gautama is 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 a kind of um, one of the many manifestations of that. All of these hundreds of billions of nayutis of kotis of Buddhas that they talk about, right? In in, in this in this sutra. Okay, there's quite a number of things there um, that I want to clarify with you if you if you're willing to uh, continue with this. Uh, topic uh, for a while. Um, so one of them was uh, the idea uh, of the docetic Buddha. Uh, so I think you've just kind of touched on that really in the way that you talked about um, Shakyamuni. Mm -hmm. So I, I don't understand the concept in a lot of detail, but I think the idea of docetism comes from Christianity. And it's the idea that Christ uh, didn't really appear as an ordinary mortal. Um, mm -hmm. He only, or, or, or sorry, he only appeared as a, an ordinary mortal, but he never was. He was God, basically. Um, right. And he only appeared to be a mortal. And I think this idea has been applied, or a similar idea has been applied to the Buddha. So in other words, uh, Shakyamuni, as you uh, referred to, rather than being like an ordinary human being who then gained enlightenment, uh, Shakyamuni actually manifested on earth always as the Buddha, if you like. Um, so he was already the Buddha. Uh, and and he, uh, he expresses some uh, maybe eternal or, or transcendent principle uh, mm -hmm. rather than simply being a, an ordinary human being who attained awakening. And so I'm relating that to the idea of Amitabha because uh, Amitabha seems to be uh, a way of talking about um, uh, enlightenment that is beyond space and time. It doesn't belong to time. Mm -hmm. But through Shakyamuni, somehow this principle is manifested in history or, as you said, manifested on earth. Um, and so I'm wondering whether that relationship that, that um, Shinran does clearly indicate between Amitabha and Shakyamuni, is that an example of this uh, docetic uh, kind of way of thinking? I, th yeah, I think it can be, certainly. The, the, you know, the docetic, uh, well, in, in, in Catholicism, it was considered a heresy, really, but the docetic heresy was that Jesus didn't really die on the cross. He wasn't really born. Um, so all of these were, were just appearances that were for the sake of, um, of teaching. That's, I mean, that's what docetic means, right? So, um, so, so they, they were there to inspire and, and, uh, and, and guide and guide people. And that um, God is so transcendent that human beings can't possibly relate can't possibly relate to that transcendence. The only thing that they can relate to is something which is very similar to themselves. And so, um, so this kind of appearance was created that appeared to be born, appeared to, to suffer, appeared to, to, um, to get angry at money changers and whatnot, and then was, and then was crucified. And, and so there is, there is a kind of parallel to that. And, and I, it, yeah, that, now that you bring that up, it's not clear to me where Shinran would stand on that. I mean, in the, in the one hand, you do get the idea that that Amitabha was always Amitabha, in which case, being Dharma Dharmakara for a long, long number of incalculable number of eons didn't really happen. It was only an appearance. Well, because, and, and perhaps even more so with the example of Shakyamuni, because if Shakyamuni was Amida, right, then well, Amida's enlightened, as we know. So that would mean that uh, Shakyamuni, when he manifested on Earth, was already enlightened, not that he became enlightened. Right, right. Uh, and so, following you know the the parallel about the docetic um, Christ. Right. Uh, the Buddha or Shakyamuni uh, only manifested as a skillful means, as the compassionate means that um, that Shinran refers to. 
in order to encourage others to follow the way, I guess, practice. Right. But, but in his essence, he was already enlightened because he's yeah. Amitabha. Well, he shares the nature of Amitabha. Right. The, the other part of that, which I think is linked as well, um, which I realized this week was starting to confuse me quite a lot, is that most of the way that we've been talking about Amida and Shinran's idea of Amida is as something transcendent, as uh, other power, obviously, it's the language that he uses, um, as a, an influence or a, a spiritual reality that is beyond us, but that can reach out and help us. Mm -hmm. But then I've been starting to think a bit more about how Shinran begins to equate um, Amitabha with Buddha nature, uh, which, he, which he does in particularly in the, the notes on the essentials of faith alone. He makes that equation. Um, and so then it starts to seem like, well, Amitabha is not outside, but inside or, or more properly our, our true nature, our deepest nature. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that earlier in this conversation, you referred to transcendent and imminent at the same time or something like that. Mm -hmm. And that's, so that's what I'm starting to get the, the vision of that at certain moments, um, Amitabha or other power uh, is talked about as something transcendent outside mm -hmm. of oneself. But at the same time or in, in other moments, it's also talked about something as imminent, uh, being mm -hmm. our, our true nature uh, mm -hmm. that, that, uh, that is already there. So I'm quite struck by that use of, of transcendent and imminent language. And I, I think previously I'd been more, definitely more connected with the use of the transcendent language because there's a lot of it. But there's definitely quite a bit of use of imminent language as well. Uh, and I think that also kind of... Um, uh, underlines uh, the idea that I talked about last week about alreadiness right. uh, so that you're you're always already uh, fused with the mind of a media it's not something that happens in the future it's not a transcendent awakening or something it's more like it's already like that um, right. so, so it becomes quite to me it, be, it becomes quite mysterious but the other thing as well was, I don't know whether you remember this, but in the uh, notes on uh, the essentials of faith alone, he also says something like um, the Buddha nature is in all things. And so all things become enlightened. And he talks about uh, kind of flowers and plants and things like that uh, becoming uh, enlightened or, or having the Dharma nature. And I found that idea quite difficult to, uh, to understand. Do you remember that? Yeah. Um, does it? I'm trying to find it now. Does it even? Does it even go so far as to say that um, in in sentient beings, you know, mountains and rocks and and whatnot, um, things that we don't, don't normally think of as being conscious? But you know, you mentioned the plants, right? The plant, the yeah. trees. You know, the trees. And certainly in the in the Sukhavati Vyuha Sutra. Um, as I recall, I mean, the, in the description of the of Sukhavati Bhumi, the, the, um, the, everything that's there is there to be conducive to, um, to, to awakening. So being born into the pure land or being born into Sukhavati isn't the same as attaining nirvana, but it's being in a place where the conditions are so conducive to nirvana, you're not distracted by all of these things that you know by by, by pain and suffering and and, uh, and and other distractions. Everything there is pointing only to the Dharma. Even the trees, even the, the songs of the birds, um, every everything that's there is yeah. aiding and supporting the you know the rest of the journey to nirvana. I found the passage that um, that I was referring to. Um, okay. It's quite um, a dense passage, but um, anyway, so the first part is, this is from Notes on Essentials of Faith Alone on page 461 of our text. Um, 
Nirvana has innumerable names. It is impossible to give them in detail. I will list only a few. Nirvana is called extinction of passions, the uncreated, peaceful happiness, eternal bliss, true reality, Dharma body, Dharma nature, suchness, oneness, and Buddha nature. Right. Buddha nature is none other than Tathagata. This Tathagata pervades the countless worlds. It fills the hearts and minds of the ocean of all beings. Thus plants, trees, and land all attain Buddhahood. Right. Yeah, that, that's, that's what I was remembering. The, 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 the land, the rocks, the mountains, the streams, you know, every, everything. So, so this, this is really um, sounding very much like the notion of, of Brahman and the Upanishads or something. You know, it's, it's this, you know, what I guess some called the ground of, ground of being. It almost has that, that, um, that kind of status. It's, it's, there's nothing that's not nirvana. <laughs> right. It also reminded me of Genjo Kawan, and I think there's a phrase that's almost exactly the same uh, in that about um, plants, trees, and so on, um, having the Buddha nature and becoming enlightened. Yes. Um, but it, yeah, I, I'm kind of struggling to, to understand what that really means. You know, the, the target pervades the countless worlds. It fills the hearts and minds of the ocean of all beings. So, uh, well, so that seems to be saying, obviously, that the Tathagata, and I think we could say that that's a synonym for Amida, right? The Tathagata, the Buddha. Mm -hmm. uh, that that is, it pervades us already. Um, right. it's, it's not that we need to, um, uh, we need to connect with that or reach out to that. It already pervades us. But not only does it pervade us, it pervades plants and trees and they also attain enlightenment. I, I had no idea what that, that could mean. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Buddha nature is none other than Tathagata, uh, he says. Uh, so, and Buddha nature is Amida, so Buddha nature is Tathagata. So these, these are all kind of equated, uh, these things. So as I said a little bit earlier, that implies that Amitabha is not just transcendent, he is imminent. Um, yes because we all have the Buddha nature. Uh, and so therefore we are all already Amitabha or, or perhaps to put it another way, uh, it's all already true that our deepest nature is the same as the nature of Amitabha. The thing that I thought was interesting or, or a thought that I had about that is that normally when we talk about Buddha nature, it seems quite a kind of metaphysical idea uh, and maybe even quite abstract. So I think it's one thing to say uh, we've all got Buddha nature, but it's another thing to say that we're all Amitabha because Amitabha is a person. That's why I, I suppose that's what I thought. He's kind of, um, uh, so Buddha nature is personalized through a through a, or particularized even through a compassionate being. So rather than it just being some abstract principle, it reveals itself personally or something like that through Amitabha. That, that, that was certainly one thought that I had had. Right. In the paragraph that follows, he goes on to say, since it is with this heart and mind of all sent, sentient beings that they entrust themselves to the vow of the Dharma body as compassionate means, this Shinjin is none other than Buddha nature. This Buddha nature is Dharma nature. Dharma nature is Dharma body. For this reason, there are two kinds of Dharma body with regard to the Buddha. This first, the first is called Dharma body as suchness, and the second, Dharma body as compassionate means. Dharma body as suchness has neither color nor form, thus the mind cannot grasp it nor words describe it. Mm. From this oneness was manifested form called Dharma body as compassionate means. So the, the Dharma body as suchness, that does seem to me to relate to the idea of Dharmakaya, something that is beyond conceptualization. There's nothing that you can say about it. Uh, I don't know, reality as it is in itself. 
Uh, and then we've got Dharma body as compassionate means, uh, which maybe runs together both the idea of Sambhogakaya and Nirmanakaya, both of those ideas together. He, he doesn't talk about three forms, uh, but I think you could see in there um, the, the Sambhogakaya and Nirmanakaya as the compassionate means. But what isn't clear really is about the relationship between those two things. How is it that uh, the Dharma body as suchness manifests the Dharma body as compassionate means? How does that come about? I mean, what does that even mean? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm not necessarily expecting answers to all of these questions. Uh, I'm just puzzling, uh, puzzling over it. Um, and as I said, I think my, at the moment, my, my main observation or, or reflection was about the introduction of imminent language into the discussion about our relationship to Amitabha, which I hadn't really picked up on before. Yeah, you know the, uh, the concept of uh, the yidam, yidam in Tibetan or ishtadevata, ishtadevata in Sanskrit, which is I've always I've always found that kind of a, a wonderful idea in a way, which is that the um, the absolute, for, for lack of a better term, you know, contains contains everything, contains all qualities, and um, and therefore it doesn't have any particular color or, or or shape, but it has, in a sense, all shapes and all colors at the same time. Whatever, whatever that would be like. I mean, I guess the universe, <laughs> the universe as a whole, it's, has all of the colors and all the shapes at the same time. Um, and the, the, the notion of the Ishta Devata is, 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 is that um, every human being has a mentality that is particularly attracted to a subset of all the qualities that there are. So all of the, you know, the, the absolute contains all qualities. Um, but that boggles the human mind. What the human mind can relate to is very particular forms, particular qualities, and and each each one of us may have. But it's 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 um, it's it's manifested in in the Sri uh, Ratna Buddhist order by the sadhana that one picks. You know, the white Tara appeals to some, uh, Shakyamuni to others. And uh, Amitabha to others, you know, particularly we have a, a kind of an emotional, um, almost, you know, super rational, irrational, sub-rational <laughs> attraction to, to this cluster of qualities. And, um, and, it, and, and we find it very inspiring. So it's sort of like you take a part of the entirety of everything that's, that's um, everything that's in the Dharmakaya and crystallize them in, into something that's finite that you can relate to. Um, and, in, and, in, and in showing reverence to that one thing, um, because it's part of the totality, in referencing that one thing, you're also showing reverence to the, to the totality. Does that, does that make sense? And so it seems to me that Amitabha is is seen at kind of in two two levels. One of them is that Amitabha is the Dharmakaya, but Amitabha is also takes this crystal, you know, particular form. He's you know the Buddha of of meditation, and in in the Tibetan uh, tradition, at least, he's he's red. You know, he's 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 associated with the color red and and uh, the direction of the setting, the west direction of the setting sun and all these things. Yeah. Um, and um, but Shinran seems to think that there's something special about Amitabha that because he knows about other Buddhas, doesn't he? And uh, he knows their names. Right. And he doesn't uh, and he doesn't. Well, he doesn't exactly discourage people from saying those names, but no. he seems to indicate that the name that we should say is the name of uh, Amida, and there's something particularly special about that um, that has something to do with the nature of Amitabha's vows, maybe. that the, It's like, yeah, all Buddhas are 
equal but some are more equal than others i don't know you know it's like uh, <laughs> right all of them are, all of them are the um the dharmakaya right the dharmakaya isn't all of them but but there's a again like the the, the notion of the ishta devata is that you, you sort of select particular qualities so so that maybe on on an ultimate level, Amitabha is the Dharmakaya, but on but on a maybe more like a Sambhogakaya level, Amitabha is the particular aspect of the Dharmakaya that has this enormous amount of compassion, so much compassion that um, that people that that sentient beings who are incapable of making progress on their own effort are nevertheless given that ability by Amitabha. And then part of part of who Amitabha is 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 this is this I mean Amitabha in, in one level is ahistorical and in another level he's the he's the end of this long story of Dharmaka uh, who who um, who did all of these penances and, and difficult practices for the for the course of many eons and and I'm not sure that I'm not sure that it can ever be presented in a way that makes it um, that makes it logical and understandable I mean it's you know there it's sort of Amitabha is both of these things simultaneously um, both outside of time and the historical being all at once and 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 if you say well how can that be then the answer to that is isn't it wonderful <laughs> right <laughs> yeah i think well we come back to the fact that um you can start to feel that you're on the edge of grasping an understanding of what all of this is talking about and then it just slips away again because right. you you suddenly see a contradiction or Right. Uh, something like that. Um, it, it doesn't make me think that then it's not worthwhile. I think one of the things that I stay with a lot is is the idea of um, let's call it poetic truth uh, that, that that we're not dealing with facts or some kind of scientific statement about something. Um, it's a bit like. Uh, I don't know, living in a poem or something, um, and just uh, absorbing the images that the poem uh, uh, that the poem communicates. Uh, for instance, one of my favourite lines from Rilke, um, which is from the Duino elegies, um, is, and I think it's actually the beginning of one of the elegies. Uh, Every angel is terrifying. Or every angel is terrible is another translation mm-hmm. and you kind of hear that and you kind of think you, you could ask the question is that true is that <laughs> a fact um, and first of all you could maybe say things like but there aren't any angels so how could that be true yeah. and and if there are angels well how could they be terrifying because the whole point of angels is that they're angels so they should be the opposite of terrifying right and yet when i first read that line I thought, wow, and I've always thought that, you know, I've always, whenever I hear it, I think there's something I can, it resonates, you know, there's something true about that, although it's quite hard to explain what what that truth might be, um, and certainly you can't give a finished answer to it, uh, but so I, I'm, I, I'm likening um, a lot of what Shinran is saying uh, to that kind of experience, you know, you, it, it's not it's not true or false facts, and it, it's not particularly philosophy either, um, which you were hinting at. You know, some Buddhist texts are a bit more philosophical, maybe. Shinran generally isn't really, is he, like that? It, it's, oh. um, uh, it, it's not about convincing you with philosophical ideas. I think it's about trying to draw you into... A mythic narrative. I think it is about that, trying to invite you to um, to enter into the, the the mythic narrative of Amida and its implications, 
And there is something very attractive about that. As I said before, for me, the idea of um, the narrative of Amida and his compassion and so on, it's a lot warmer than an idea like Buddha nature, which can seem quite abstract and cold. Um, mm -hmm. uh, and and that, that interests me. So although on the one hand, obviously we're saying that Amida is the Buddha nature, it's different because Amida manifests uh, as a form or through form. And also he has a, a narrative history as well, uh, you know, which is the, the kind of his mythic journey towards uh, enlightenment so it, it gives it quite a different tone yeah and I, I was I was thinking of, of this um, you know thus thus the, the plants the trees and the land all attain Buddhahood um, as rather than seeing that as a uh, as a statement of fact uh, as a historical fact as as the kind of an invitation to see the world as if it's it's all um buddhahood as if as if buddhahood is is there and i i, I was i was re reminded in a way of of uh something that the photographer ansel adams said that that uh once you pick up a camera and start looking at a, any subject as a potential photograph you never quite see that thing in the same way again, it changes the way that you see. And and uh, Ansel Adams often talked about how the uh, the importance of photography is for the photographer, not not the not the image that people look at. Photography it changes that person's way of seeing. And 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 uh, for him it became it became really uh, almost like a religious experience. And and um, and I was I was just you know looking out the window and I see all these sunflowers and and some some uh, desert willow and other plants and their bees and wasps and hummingbirds flitting about among all these flowers and just for a moment I thought what if I saw all of this as as being just the manifestation of Buddha nature and. It, and then the world, it, it, you know, just the ordinary scene out my window suddenly becomes quite um, almost magical. It's just filled with 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 wonder. And and it all becomes a revelation of enlightenment, right? And so enlightenment then doesn't become something other or something that you're um, uh, you're taking steps towards. Uh, it becomes well, everything that that's already there, your your whole environment. Yeah, and and I think that, that for people like David Loy, who who um, who is very much an environmentalist and and a Buddhist, that his his um, environmentalism is is something that is based on this profound and deep respect and appreciation of the world of nature and. And it seems to me that if you have, if you if you're capable of thinking of all plants and trees in the land as having already attained Buddhahood or as having or as as being um, concrete manifestations of Buddhahood, you're bound to retreat it to 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 treat it with a respect that you might not otherwise have for it. And I mean, th th doesn't that idea precisely reflect? The idea of the pure land, yeah, um, that the, the what the pure land is, yeah, is a realm where everything reveals the nature of enlightenment to you, right? The sound of the birds and so on, right? So we, we kind of come full circle then, and and start we're beginning to recognise that the uh, the pure land, while on the one hand, considered as something transcendent and attained after death, is at the same time um, was manifested in through ordinary reality. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that it's, it's it, and, and and I suppose that you know when he says that if you if you have Shinjin, I mean if you if you 
accept the vow, if you appreciate, if you appreciate the vow, then that very appreciation puts you in the pure land. You're, 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 you know, the pure land is no longer something you have to wait until you die to be born into, but you're in it now. And, and it seems to be that being in the pure land and being in the ordinary world, you know, the secular world at the same time means that you're in, you're in the, the ordinary world with a, with, a, with a very deep appreciation of it, a respect for it. I mean, if, if you think about the pure land, one of the images that just, it's impossible even to, to, to form this, this thought almost is, well, here we are in the pure land. Let's, let's drill for oil now, or let's, 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 let's make an open pit copper mine or something like that, right? You know, let's, here, here's a bunch of wonderful birds that are teaching the Dharma. Let's kill them and eat them. I mean, you know, let's, let's spray some insecticide or something. You know, just, it's just inconceivable. And I, and I think that, that if you really sort of develop Shinjin, you would start seeing the entire world that you live in as being like that. I mean, you just, the idea of, of spoiling it is just obscene. Right. And it, it's, um, it's very much a, a non-material vision. Um, so rather than uh, seeing uh, the environment as a set of resources to be made use of, mm. um, the environment is, well, revealing enlightenment, which would invite you into a very different relationship to it, uh, exactly. I think. Um, and, and it becomes more active, as well um rather than passive so rather than it being oh okay there's there's a bunch of wood that i can uh, you know use for my purposes mm-hmm. it becomes wow there's a tree that's revealing enlightenment to me yeah and i'm seeing a lot of parallel with all of this with dogen and um, i've been struck a little bit before by how on the one hand it would seem that Dogen and Shinran have almost opposite viewpoints. When you start digging down into it, they seem to have an awful lot in common in terms of their spiritual vision. Yeah, um, it's true, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it really quite is. I'm struck by that. Yeah. So you don't I don't think they actually knew each other, um, but they did live at the same time, didn't they? Yeah, the, um, Shin, Shinran was, was uh, I think, I think, um, Dogen, as I recall, was born in 1200, and Shinran was already maybe 35 years old by that time. Um, but yeah, they overlapped. And Shinran, I can't remember the, the year that he died, but I think, didn't Dogen die in his 50s? Yeah. Yeah, and, and, uh, and Shinran may have actually outlived him. I, th- you know, I think he may have been like 30, 30 years older. 35 years older, but he may have actually outlived because he, he lived to be quite old. He did. Um, yeah, 11, seven, born in 1173. 1173, okay. Yeah, and uh, I think, uh, and he, you're right, he did outlive um, Dogen. Yeah, he did live a long time, uh, about 90 to about 89, 90 around there. Yeah. 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 Um, there was one other thought that I wanted to take up. Um, about all of this kind of running together of Dharma nature, Tathagata, Amida, Dharmakaya. And it's the idea that, um, where does this come in? Well, the idea that Shinjin is none other than Buddha nature, that idea. Right. Uh, because I guess I've tended to think that Shinjin, perhaps partly because it's it's, translated as faith or, or true entrusting is like um, a subjective experience um, like uh, I don't know um, um, yeah some kind of personal existential insight or awakening to something yeah like realizing you're a Buddhist and you always have been <laughs> something like that um, but sometimes I get the idea that Shinjin is more like, it's like a world or something. It's, um, I don't know how to explain it. 
is is not it's not something that you experience but it's more like um the 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 universe in which you live uh or within which you live where certain things make sense but it doesn't belong to you so it, it i think i tried to touch on this last time but i not very clearly so it, it constitutes your world rather than being a content of your world mm. um yeah i, I know I, i'm i'm struggling to 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 find my way into this um because so so it's not that it's not that at some point uh shinjin arises and then you can think oh yeah shinjin has arisen and now i see that i've been grasped by a meter never to be abandoned so it's not like um it's not like a point on a journey it's more like um it's more like finding yourself uh in a in a place where certain things now seem true or, or, or already have seemed true i don't know i'm obviously not able to express this quite how i want to no, it's it's not it's not a uh, it's not a metaphysical it's not an ontological kind of approach and it's certainly not epistemological i mean you can't imagine anyone saying well how do you know that <laughs> how do you know that amitabha is is a manifestation of the dharmakaya you know it's not an it, there's there's no epistemological dimension to it. It's purely aesthetic, it seems to me. It's it's something that enhances your um, your appreciation of the of the world that you live in. Could, um, could you say more about that, Shinjin, as the aesthetic? Well, just it it's something that <clears throat> that I think um, again I, I guess to use the term invitation. It's an invitation to appreciate the beauty of, of, of the world that, that, that you're in. Um, rather, rather, you know, it, it, it's an invitation to see the, the ordinary world that you grew up in, that you may have taken for granted, and to see it as the pure land uh, that, that has all of these wonderful properties of supporting the very highest aspirations that you could possibly have brings out the very best in you you know and and, and so it's aesthetic in, in that sense if, if if that in fact is a proper use of the word aesthetic maybe not i think it is i think it's um i like it i think it's beautiful um i think what i was what i'm trying to drive at is that there seems to be something about it that wants to um undermine this idea of shinjin as an attainment right um and and shinjin as something that if you like you possess or belongs to you that's that's a property or a content of your mind or consciousness um and that maybe you can even look at with pride or something like that or, or with a sense of achievement and accomplishment it doesn't right. well it seems to me that it isn't like that it isn't that uh so it's, it's not something that you can appropriate, uh, or if you are appropriating it, uh, you're 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 doing something different. You're not in. You're not connecting with Shinjin. Yeah. But then the question is: so how how can you conceive of it and and talk about it? And what I'm trying to uh, suggest is that it. Um, well, maybe it's a little bit like when you. Um, when you when you're a buddhist if you like um so you maybe you could ask when did you decide or when did you conclude or when you did did you realize that you were a buddhist right and uh i'm not sure that i could say there was a point when that happened myself uh but but clearly i do think like that mm -hmm. now um and i do it is a is part of the way that I conceive of my existence, but I don't think of it necessarily as a particular moment that happened. Right, right. Yeah, and I think um, the closest I can come to saying that there was a moment at which it happened was was when I, the very first time I heard a lecture on, on Buddhism, in fact, which was in a Unitarian church. <laughs> my parents were members of this Unitarian church and, and I, I went to this church and, and, uh, 
and the Unitarian Church had a um, relationship with a, a Reformed Jewish synagogue and with a um, Shin Buddhist church, Buddha, you know, the Buddhist churches of, of America, um, <clears throat> followers of Shin, Shinran. And, and, um, and uh, a guest preacher came from the Buddhist church and was talking about Buddhism. He wasn't actually talking about Shin Buddhism at all. He was talking about Buddhism in a more general, you know, general way. And this thought suddenly formed in my in my mind that so there's a name to the way that I see the world. <laughs> you know, I just thought I was kind of a weird, <laughs> an oddball who didn't fit. I thought I was a misfit. But actually, there's a name for for this way of seeing the world, and it's and the name of it is Buddhism. I mean, that's as close as I can come to saying that there was a moment of, uh, and I don't, I don't think at that, I don't think at that moment I said, "Well, I'm a Buddhist," but uh, you know, that probably came along quite a bit later that I was actually able to to say that as a predicate about myself. Um, when we're talking about, ex, ex, you know, experiences, this, this, this. Uh, idea that you just expressed or this that it's not something that you can you can appropriate or take take pride in or or point to a a moment in history and say that's when it happened it seems to me that it is it is a a state of grace in which we kind of come in and 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 leave leave behind i mean just from the point of view of the way it feels to be a human being in the world is that there are times when you can you can walk out in, into uh, into the world and 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 it feels like a pure land and then there are other times in which in which you just feel completely lost and, and kind of beaten down and there, there, there was a, a passage that really really struck me hard on page 125 after um, well, right at, right at the beginning of this section on on being the same as Maitreya, where he's kind of talking about all of these things. And then suddenly, in paragraph 113, almost just out of the blue, <laughs> Shinran says, I know how truly grievous it is that I, Gutoko Shinran, am sinking in an immense ocean of desires and attachments and I'm lost in vast mountains of fame and advantage, so that I rejoice not at all. I rejoice not at all at entering the stage of the truly settled and feel no happiness at coming nearer the realizations of true enlightenment. How ugly it is, how wretched. I was just, I practically fell out of my chair when I read that. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I was very struck by it too, and I, underlined that section um yeah yeah what, what, what did you make of that uh i think a number of different things i mean one of them uh is clearly a kind of um a very deep and sobering awareness uh of his um contingent human nature you know his uh limitedness right uh and how burdensome that can feel uh how humiliating really uh, that that can feel to be aware of that um, but what interested me is that in that confession if you like or that recognition of um, his um, his um, corruption if you know or limitedness um, he doesn't negate uh, that he's been born or that he's truly settled he doesn't negate that he simply says that he can't rejoice at it or he's not rejoicing at it. Um, so I thought there was quite an interesting paradox there that you could even be aware uh, in some sense of having been saved, if you like, by Amida or being born in the, the stage of the truly settled. But even while you're, you're aware of that, you're, you're, you're really sobered and... Um, yeah, really sobered by the awareness of your own uh, unskillful nature, really, I suppose. Right. <laughs> yeah, it's sort of, it, it, it's, um, when it, it, especially, I mean, using these words like how ugly and how wretched, 
it's 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 really focusing on how um, well on my own on my own merit I really don't I I don't really belong in this beautiful world in this beautiful pure land I'm I'm you know on on my own I would be a kind of a stain or an impurity in this in the in the pure land. I actually find it a huge relief to recognize or to read that uh, um, a 13th century Japanese Buddhist kind of feels like I do. (laughs) (laughs) But, but it sort of is, it it also kind of um, emphasizes the point that despite being, despite being somebody who can be described in this way, sinking in an immense ocean of desires and attachments, lost and vast mountains of fame and advantage. How ugly, how wretched, and yet here I am. And it's and it's not because of my merit, but it's because of Amitabha's grace. I mean, I think that's that's the sort of part of you know the the message that's made. But I, but but I suppose yeah. that Shinran must have must have had periods in his life when he really did feel that way. Right. Yeah. Uh, which, mm, which is yeah. one of the reasons why I find his writings quite convincing, because you feel like there's a human being there uh, who's actually, you know, struggling, facing spiritual challenges, right. and is, is is honest about them. Right. Again, but again, what's interesting about that passage is that he say, says, "I know truly how grievous it is." Uh, so, what is grievous? is the fact that he's not rejoicing in entering the stage of the truly settled. That's what's grievous. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, uh, be, yeah, because he's uh, s- uh, sinking in the immense, o- immense ocean of desires and attachments and he's lost, for that reason, he doesn't rejoice in having entered the, tra- the stage of the truly settled and that's what's grievous, that he doesn't rejoice in that. At least that's what I'm understanding it to say. Yeah, lost in vast mountains of fame and advantage is, is sort of uh, succumbing to the, to the loka dharmas, to the, to the worldly dharmas, and, and, not, and therefore, so that I rejoice not at all in entering the stage of the truly settled. Yeah, you're right. I mean, because he doesn't, yeah, he doesn't say he hasn't entered that stage, but he's not, he's not rejoicing at it. And that's what's ugly. Right. And that's what's, that's what's wretched. I, you know, I, I, would, I just, you know, I, I feel like um, coming back to this passage again and again, it's just one of those things that just really, really s- strong passage, very forceful. And, yeah. and uh, I, have to, I just have this feeling that, that it's one of these things that you would, you know, as, as you reflect on it, you would see it in different ways every time you looked at it. Yeah, again, it, it seems to be indicating a kind of paradox um, uh, and even maybe a, a dual reality or, or something like that. Um, yeah. So the dual reality is that, yes, uh, we are um, sinking in the ocean of desires and attachments and our desire for fame and advantage. But it is also true, it would seem, that we've entered the, tra- the stage of the truly settled. Yeah. So those two, those two things are, are facts at the same time. Uh, and it is because we're enmeshed in the ocean of desires and so on, that we're not rejoicing in the fact that we are in the stage of the truly settled. The, the que- I guess a question, one question would be whether what Shinran's describing there is a kind of temporary mood that he was in, maybe a difficult moment, or whether what he's describing there is the essential condition in a way that that's just how it is. So you're kind of faced with this situation of um, knowing that you have been... Uh, grasp never to be abandoned by Amida, your mind is fused with the mind of Amida, but you don't rejoice in that, or you're not capable of rejoicing in that, we're not capable of rejoicing in that, because at the very same time, we're 
uh, were enmeshed in our desires and attachments. I mean, to me, it seems to be describing quite a complex psychological condition um, mm. uh, or well, more than psychological, maybe uh, uh, existential or, um, um, yeah, how ugly it is, how wretched. I can relate to that. You know, <laughs> I, I, I can't, well, what, what I mean, I suppose, is that sometimes I can be keenly aware of how, how blessed my life is, mm-hmm. um, how privileged my life is, how I've had the opportunity to um, discover the Dharma, how through discovering the Dharma, I've, meet, I've met a lot of wonderful and amazing people who've almost unfailingly been generous and kind to me and, mm-hmm. and tried to help me and still do. And yet often the state that I'm in is feeling dissatisfied, uh, frustrated, maybe that things aren't going quite how I want them to. Uh, Or maybe even I'm just conscious of my own egocentric tendencies, you know, my own selfishness, my own grumbling mind, finding fault with others, finding fault with myself Mm -hmm. and feeling sorry for myself. I think that's something I do quite a lot, feeling sorry for myself. So I'm, I'm, I'm there feeling sorry for myself. And I've got this blessed life, you know, how ugly that is, how wretched, yeah, right. how wretched. Uh, but it, it's, I can't say that it's not unfamiliar. That, um, yeah, I, 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 when I read these little things by, by Shinran like that, I find myself thinking this guy has got deep existential sensitivity, mm-hmm. uh, really deep. So, so rather than just going on about how wonderful he is because he, he's realized the Shinjin or he teaches the Dharma, he is intensely and keenly aware of his own limitations. And that, that seems to me to be very poignant that, that he, these two sides, you know, that he's rejoicing in immediately sometimes, uh, but on the other hand, very intensely aware of his own uh, human contingency mm-hmm. i don't well, think there's a way out of that uh, I, I i don't i don't think there is a way out of that because to be human is to be particular and contingent mm-hmm. what well, something that's interesting about this passage and its placement in, in the text as a whole yeah is it's followed immediately by this very mm. very long i mean Pretty much the rest of the chapter is this long um, excerpt from the Nirvana Sutra talking about Ajata Shatru, who murdered his own father to become the king. And, and so we go through you know, the, the, the usual stock of uh, substandard teachers at the time of the, of the Buddha. It's, it's just like the Brahmajala Sutta, you know, you, you have all of these teachers who are teaching crazy things like well there's you know there's one dharma for for uh, for kings and 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 a king murdering his father to become a king is no different from a from a worm breaking out of its mother's womb and tearing it tearing its mother's womb apart that's what you have to do to be born if you want to be the king the only way to do it is to murder your father, right? <laughs> and, you know, you, and, and there's no such thing as a difference between black karma and white karma. And there's no fruition to karma. There's no heaven. There's no hell. All of these teachings, which are the sort of standard, you know, um, false views, the, 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 uh, the, uh, the dittis, you know, the drishtis that are talked about, um, mithya, Drishti views, and and um, and then eventually, the the Ajata Shatru comes to to the Buddha to the Tathagata, and you have these wonderfully poetic passages of the healing light, the healing the healing moonlight of Samadhi, um, and and so this it's as if this whole Long Sutra is the you know the redemption of Ajata Shatru mm. 
and it's almost as if Shinran in his this statement of how wretched it is 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 followed immediately by this passage called the person difficult to save and and, and uh, goes into this uh, story and almost rhapsodic uh, view of um, of, of, of the Tathagata. And there was this one passage in, in that in particular. Um, well, so yeah, on, on, on page 133, the bottom of 133, um, where he talks about, you know, the suppose there there is a, a parent, there are parents who have seven children, and one of those children is sick, sickly, and so naturally they 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 devote their attention to the child who's who's sick because that's the child who needs who needs attention. Um, their hearts lean wholly toward the sick child. It's like this with the Tathagata. It's not that there is no equality among all sentient beings, but his heart leans wholly toward the person who has committed evil. To the person sunken in self-indulgence, the Buddha turns compassionate thoughts. Those who are free of self-indulgence, his heart, his heart lets free. Who are those who are free of self-indulgence? The bodhisattvas of the first sages, great king, the, wor uh, the world-honored Buddhas who do not see sentient beings' family lineage, nor do they see young, old, middle-aged, poverty or wealth, auspicious times, astrological sun, moon, or stars, skilled workers, mental laborers, or men, menial laborers, I'm sorry, or, or, or men and, and, and women serv servants. They see only sentient beings who possess the good mind. So like, that's all of these things that we get caught up in, um, class and, and various levels of success. When the Buddha sees us, all he sees is people with good minds, sentient beings with good with great with good minds. Um, then the king king asks, "What is the samadhi of moon radiant love?" And Jivaka answered, "The the light of the moon causes all the blue lotuses to unfold in brilliant luminosity. Such is the samadhi of moon radiant love." which causes sentient beings to open forth the good mind. That is why it's called the Samadhi of, of Moon Radiant Love. So all of these poetic passages about Moon Radiant Love, it's as if the Tathagata radiates this, and, and, and this, this radiance heals everyone in whatever wretched state they may be in. It's, it's quite an amazing um, sutra. I don't think I've ever, I've never really known this sutra before of you are you familiar with it this is from the mahaparinirvana sutra is that true right yeah the you know, the 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 the, uh, the, mahayana, the right. mahayana version of it which is very very long um it's very long uh, uh, and uh, it's interesting these things that you're picking out which are uh, quite spectacular because when i was looking at it this morning uh, they didn't uh, so much call my attention because what caught my attention was um, some things that seemed slightly dodgy to me uh, about um, uh, basically, apparently the Buddha saying that you've got nothing to worry about because you didn't really kill anyone. Um, like uh, just below that amazing passage that, that you um, read, uh, the Buddha says, why do you say that you will certainly fall into hell? Great King, all the evil committed by sentient beings is of two kinds, light and heavy. That performed mentally and verbally is designated light. That performed bodily, verbally and mentally is de designated heavy. Mm -hmm. Great King, when one thinks in one's mind and speaks with one's lips, but does not act physically, the recompense is light. Great King, in the past you did not command verbally that murder be performed. You only said that the legs should be cut. That's all. Uh, great king, if you had ordered your vassals to behead the king, it would surely have been while he was standing. But even if he were beheaded, if they did it while he was sitting, you would not have committed evil. Much less then, since no royal command was given, can you have committed evil. Right. Uh, king, if you have committed evil, all 
Buddha's world honored ones must have done so also. Why? Because your father, the former king Bimbisara, always planted roots of good by paying homage to the Buddhas. For this reason, he was able to occupy the throne in his life. If the Buddhas had not accepted that homage, he would not have been able to become king. If he had not become king, you would not, been a, you would not have been able to kill him in order to seize the kingdom. If you have committed evil in killing your father, we Buddhas too must have also. If the Buddhas, the world-honored ones, have not committed evil, how can you alone have done so? I don't know, there seems to be some fairly kind of dodgy considerations around ethics in all of that. Um, right, right, right. Uh, yeah, uh, but I, I like the thing that you read. And the other thing that I picked out about this whole, as you say, very long uh, passage from the Mahaparinirvana Sutra, <clears throat> another text, was basically the reflection about whether someone who's committed the five heinous crimes uh, uh, will can be born in the pure land or, or whether Amida's vow applies to him or her or not right. uh, and then there's the five heinous crimes and slandering the true dharma right uh, and then on the one hand uh, the buddha says well the exclusion clause really only applies to people who have slandered the true dharma that's the only way that you really truly exclude yourself from uh, Amitabha's vow uh, but then he goes on to say and uh, not even that actually even um, even people who've slandered uh, the Dharma uh, are, can be can be reborn and so on page 148 he says uh, that um, uh, thus Amida awakening great compassion grasps them and brings them to birth since, however, they have yet to commit the karmic evil of slandering the Dharma, in order to prevent them from doing so, it is stated that if one slanders the Dharma, will not, one will not attain birth. This is to be understood as relevant to those who have not committed this evil. Even if one has committed it, one will nevertheless be grasped and brought to attainment of birth. Um, so he, he, he kind of skips around this uh, or, or jumps around this but basically um he comes to the conclusion that all beings will be uh or are grasped there's no there's no exception even those who've committed the five heinous crimes and have slandered the dharma mm -hmm.